Oh, dang, I forgot what I was going to say now. Have another drink of beer. There you go. Uh, <laughs> a little reminder. No, so I never got on a ticket, but... Oh, that's what I was... Uh, <laughs> hey, it worked! <laughs> I remember. <laughs> <laughs> hey, welcome back to Too Hard, Too Fast, the podcast where we try to broaden perspectives all while going off the rails. In today's episode, we have, you probably recognize him if you're binge-watching Netflix, this is the retired lieutenant. In the in the documentary, they, re, they introduce him as Detective D, uh, Gil Carrillo. I told you I was going to mess it up. <laughs> no, you didn't mess it up. Sounds good, brother. Sounds good. <laughs> Gil Carrillo, um, he is the detective that were, that one of the detectives that is uh, credited with capturing the Night Stalker, Rick Ramirez, the serial killer in the 80s. Uh, and I would say after watching the documentary that he was really the key to to identifying that one clue that really linked it back to identifying the serial killer, Rick Ramirez. We're going to get into that. We're not going to go to specifics into the documentary because if you haven't watched it, you need to watch it. It is super good. I really enjoyed it. But without further ado... Uh, I don't know why I even said that. That's not even a word I say. But let's get this back. Buckle up. Let's go too hard, too fast. Boom. <laughs> Welcome to Too Hard, Too Fast. Welcome back to Too Hard, Too Fast. Anything that rolls downhill, man. And the old habits die hard, right? It's the podcast by the people for the people. Well, I'm going too hard, too fast. We are double fisted on that ass. <laughs> Only here. Too hard, too fast. Let's do it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Too Hard, Too Fast. I'm Gil Carrillo, and I was just fortunate enough to be invited to be a guest on this show. And there, there's nothing to this too hard, too fast. You can never be hard enough, so it's not too hard. You could be semi-flaccid, and that would be worse. So just too hard. And slow it down, brother. It's all good, and I'm just happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I love all of you. God bless you, Low and smooth, baby. <laughs> so welcome, everyone, to Too Hard, Too Fast oh, podcast. <laughs> right. Where we go off the rails, and George has to worry about it. So <laughs> here we go for the podcast of the century. Cheers. Oh, Gil, thank you for doing this. Um, I Like I told I, you, I was going to mess up your intro. Not a problem, brother. It's an honor and a pleasure just to be invited to be Invited to be a part of your podcast that uh, does my heart some good, makes me feel like I'm still appreciated or still wanted or just somebody kicked around in my waning years. No, man. I mean, like I said, I we talked on the phone uh, a couple of weeks ago or a week ago, and I told you, and I had to be honest because I, I, I didn't want to start off at all being like a you know how like they do in California, they they, you know, they blow a lot of smoke, you know, to make you. But I wanted to be honest. I want to say, hey, I learned about you through somebody else, and I don't keep up with like serial killer stuff. Like it's not my thing. Like it, I don't like. I have I have two friends right now that are super, pretty much angry that I did not have them guest co-host uh, because they're <laughs> super fans of like true crime stuff. 
And so they were like, no way you have uh, Gil Carrillo. I was like, yeah, man, look, he's coming on. But anyways, like I was saying, it's um, I came in to find out uh, through another person that I interviewed. And then I saw that they interviewed George Lopez. And George Lopez was talking highly about you. And I was like, well, we all know who George Lopez is. But I need to figure out who Gil Carrillo that he is talking highly about. And I went into a research and I was like, man, I got to reach out and see if he wants to, wants to do it. And so I'm glad that you did. And I watched the documentary and even more so, you know, being brown, like I told you, Hispanic, it's great to see somebody that, you know, providing a service to the, to the whole community, but then, you know, you're being held in a high regard, at least in well, my thank opinion. you. Thank you. Thank you very much. You know, when that whole documentary thing started, the thing behind it was I was approached by a, a family friend. He was a former, he was a former police officer, former deputy sheriff, and he got injured on duty. He had to retire. He became a writer. He was writing for uh, the program Chicago PD and he was writing for them. And he called me up and he said, hey, you know what? Uh, I, I'm really tired. If you look at movies, if you look at television, there are no Latino heroes. All Latino portrayed movies are either killers, drugsters, thugs, robbers. Uh, you don't have a positive role model. He says, I'm kicking around with another writer. He says, I wanted to find something positive in a Latino. He says, and we keep, I keep coming back to you. So that was the genesis behind it. And unfortunately, uh, once everything got to roll, he couldn't even be a part of it. Even though he's a writer, he couldn't be a part of it because he, had, he would – working with Chicago PD, and then he left Chicago PD and he became a writer for the Mayans, uh, MC. And he was under contract, so he couldn't leave there. And so his partner that uh, hooked up with me at first, uh, we had gone out to dinner and they threw some idea, you know, we want to do this. And I, and I told him, quite honestly, I, I don't give two shits about, about television. And it's not about the money. I'm retired now and I'll never be rich. I just, I'm comfortable. And uh, this all sounds well and good, but I've been approached before by many people to want to do something. And that's what they do, I guess, in the business. Everybody has an idea. They write it up and then they got to go sell it. You know, they got to go pitch it to the networks. They all get turned down. So we got nothing. And I won't sign contracts until <laughs> it's all ready to rock and roll. And so the first guy, uh, you know, next day, my friend called me up and he says, hey, that writer, Man, he was all turned on. You really excited him. He was good. And I said, well, good for him. I told my wife last night, hey, I got me a good steak. I got me some wine. Made a new friend. That's all that matters. You know, this never happens. It does well. Next thing I know, about a year and a half later, the same guy wants me to go out and have dinner with him, with a director now. And so I went and met him for dinner. We talked, and that guy was all jazzed. And he says, I'd like to do this. Would you go along? And I said, yeah. He says, okay, I'll have my attorney. I said, you don't have to get an attorney. I don't need a signing contract. I'll shake my hand with you. And that's good enough to get this project rolling. And I, you have my word. I'll talk to nobody. I won't give up any information. It's you and me, brother, let's roll. And because he said he wanted to do it. And that's what started it. And it was all, he liked the idea of, a young Hispanic, and this guy's this guy's white, you know, Tiller Russell, great, 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 nice guy. 
And he says, I like the idea, a young Latino, nobody believes in him. It's his theory. This is what he wants. And that's the way it really was. And in the end, we come out ahead. We were victors because uh, we captured him. He was arrested and he was prosecuted successfully. So it was all good. And so many people said, why are you doing this? It's so old. Other people have done stuff for documentaries. And I said, hey, it's not my money. It's their money. They're going to do whatever they want. And it came out to be uh, not because I was part of it, not because it was my case, but Netflix had, uh, for the first time in Netflix history, a documentary that went to number one within a week and held the number one trending position for a week. And then it went to number six in the world. So somebody liked it. Somebody watched it. And as a result, when you were saying in the beginning, uh, there the, the your your friends are into that true crime and they wanted to be co-hosts. Well, George Lopez, the Mexican comedian actor, he's into true crime. And I didn't know this. I didn't know about it. I had paid to go see George uh, at least four or five times. And all of a sudden, a friend of mine calls me up and says, hey, I just heard on the radio, George Lopez says, anybody know Gil Carrillo? Have him give me a call. Here's a number. I want to get in touch with him. So I called, left the message. We finally made contact. He wanted me to go golfing with him. And we talked for 35, 45 minutes the first time. I said, well, I don't golf. And uh, he says, all right. Well, how about coming down and having a beer? I said, well, I can have a beer that I, that I can do. He said, well, come on down with a couple of friends and have some beer with me and my buddies. So I went down there, and the place turned out to be right in the middle of a residential neighborhood, a studio. It's a nondescript building, block walls, no writing on them. And I go in there, and it's the studio. And I said, well, where do I sit? He says, right there in front of the mic. So I just <laughs> sat up there. There was an empty chair. And I had no idea what was happening. And I mean, and they don't say quiet on the set. They don't say nothing. You just sit there and bullshit. And that's what we did. And the show was a success. I, that first one was a success. He had his viewership went way up. It was a great, it was so much fun for me. And as it turned out, as time went on, uh, George and I have become friends. He's a nice guy. Uh, so many people thought he was anti-police and yet, here I am now. He calls me his co-host, and I was a cop for 38 years. So what does that say about him hating police? He doesn't. Yeah. And he's, he's just a, a real nice guy, and he's taken me, I, I guess you could say, he's taken me under his wing. He lets me ride his coattails, and uh, it's fun for me. I just like to laugh. Laugh soothes the – heals the heart, you know. So, And before I go any further, by the way, cheers. Cheers, uh, cheers. So, when I'm on the when I'm on with George, we drink his beer, but he's not around, so I'm drinking my wine. And my glass, all my glasses are imprinted. It says Casa Carrillo, Vino con amigos. So hey, here's amigos. to you. Cheers. Now, usually my first question is um, what are you drinking? Um, but I don't want to lose the touch on the on the police thing, uh, since you being a police officer, uh, one of the first people I called right after I got the, uh, off the phone with you and we confirmed that we were going to do this was my dad because he's a retired police officer. Oh, uh, I just, thank him for his service. <laughs> well, thank you. And yes, thank, uh, thank him. And I don't know. It was kind of like uh, 
it reminds me now that I'm thinking about it. Um, in the documentary, it was um, wanting your dad's your dad to be approved, your dad's approval or being proud of you. I wanted my dad. To be, I wanted to make my dad. I wanted to make my dad proud. I wanted him to be proud of his son. Yeah, so that was kind of the same thing. But I was like, if he's watching right now, sorry, dad, this is gonna go off the rails real quick. <laughs> no, he likes that kind of nonsense. He knows. Um, he likes to have fun. But yeah, that's the first person I called. And I was like, hey, I know you know about this uh, being a police police officer. Uh, I'm gonna have a chance to talk to him. And he was like, oh shit, no way. So. That's oh. <laughs> oh, that's that's cool. I'm glad I got his approval. <laughs> well, well, I'm glad you have it. Hopefully, I have it. <laughs> uh, Gil, what are you drinking? I'm drinking some. This one is Clos de Bois. It's uh, Cabernet Sauvignon wine. Uh, that's about all I drink these these days. I drink Clos de Bois, Joe Gott, uh, and a couple of others that I drink, but it's primarily wine. Uh, I used to drink nothing but hard stuff. Matter of fact, during the night soccer case, I got to tell you right now, I was drinking uh, Jose Cuervo Gold, oh. and that's uh, that's all I was drinking. And then, but I had to stop drinking that because the the realities are we were working so hard and so long, and the only place my partner and I could get together and you know brainstorm by ourselves because when you're in the office. Or, guys are coming up around you with their ideas and what they want to do. And, you know, what do you got? And when you're out in the field working, well, then you're interviewing, you're talking. You know? So the only place we could get a chance by ourselves was every once in a while, we'd be able to go to a bar and we can't get drunk. You know, we wouldn't get really drunk because we were exhausted. We are tired. The captain is quoted in the big paper out here saying we were working uh, 16, 18 hours a day, seven days a week. And so we'd stop by at a bar and have me a couple of shots of tequila and then vamanos. You know, we got to go home. We'd talk, right? Take notes on bar napkins. And <laughs> then we'd go home. Well, I'd come home and the wife, uh, she'd say late night. And I'd say, yeah, another late night. And she <laughs> hmm, smells like you've been drinking. Right, late night. Well, if you have oh, they, they one thing. They can that out real quick. Uh, yeah. If you have one tequila, you may as well have a dozen of them because it gives you breath of a buffalo's ass. What <laughs> will gold does anyway? So it's easy to smell. So I, I'm drinking that rum. I was drinking by drinking anything I, I could get my hands on at the time. And then I eventually just stopped. I've never been a big beer drinker. And the only time I drink beer really is with George. I like the stuff he puts out. Uh, but other than that, it's always been uh, one of my, the guy that broke me in at homicide got me turned on to wine and that's that's all i drink now nice so i'm gonna ask you to rate it um but last time i did this um the guest told me that you know i should do it first because then they look like uh, they look like idiots at, at best trying to um do my rating skill so i'll do it first that way because there's no way i want to make you look anything less than you know the gil carrillo so, yeah, <laughs> oh, you know, if it gets to that point later on on the podcast of this episode, then cool. But right now, I'll save you the this part. So I'm drinking this 90 minute Imperial IPA from Dogfish Head. I think it's I don't know where it's from. I, I don't know if it's Texas or not, 
but I grabbed it because of this, because it looked it looked cool. That's the only reason. And um, I was looking for to see if I could get like that George Lopez beer that we talked about. See if there was a way to get it shipped out, or if some Mexican store here had it. Could not find it. Uh, hopefully, it does get around to San Antonio somehow, because I would love to taste it. But I got this for that design. It's an IPA, so it's like nine percent alcohol. Uh, my brother told me it's gonna put me on my ass, so we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but the flavor is good, and the price was actually very decent for being a sixteen ouncer and being this expense, uh, this uh, high on the alcohol percentage. So based on taste, alcohol percentage, and the design, I would give it a. 1.72 it's also kind of light feeling like it's not gonna make me feel heavy even though i am a heavy guy <laughs> okay well let me tell you what a much older wiser man would say today i am drinking Clos de bois it's cabernet sauvignon it is from california it's from the alexander valley up in sonoma county good wine cap area up there and it's a bottle of wine but the realities are i don't give a shit what the labels say the content says to me the wine is good i don't care what it is that i've never tasted i've tasted maybe a one but once you start drinking this stuff i haven't tasted below a two they're all good brother they're all good and see when you're this old hey just just keep it coming. Just keep, Just keep it, coming. it coming. Everything turns into. A I don't even have to worry about ice because you you drink this at room temperature, so I don't have to worry about keeping it cold. Nothing, yeah, nothing fancy about me. I don't even care if your patas were clean when they were smashing the grapes. It all tastes good going down, and it all comes out clean. So I don't care. <laughs> hey, I'll drink to that. That's a. That is very true. Um, yes, this one is um, this one is a little bit cold, but by the time I get to this one, it's probably going to be warm. So we'll see what the flavor thing tastes like. Then. What when I when I do the show with George, it's always a minimal two beer show. It's a two beer show most of the time, unless we're really into something good. Then we'll pop that third beer. But most of the time, it's a two beer show. Nice, that's well, good stuff. That's why I grabbed it. I was like, let's make this a two beer show. I remembered when I when uh. We were on the phone. I was like, he said two-beer show. Let's try to make it a two-beer show. <laughs> yeah, and and not to worry. This bottle was open. I have this special thing that keeps the oxygen out, so nice and fresh. But I've got plenty of bottles where this one came from in my wine rack. Matter of fact, I think, yeah, behind my head over here, I got oh, yeah, there one go. wine rack. That's yeah. one wine rack, but I got another wine rack back by my bar. That that one's, that one's was fully stocked. That's, that's, uh, that's what we call in the community – Ay, ay, muy, muy. <laughs> <laughs> but I like trip. that oxygen thing. I'd never seen that before. Like, I always, yeah, always do that. Love me, but like trying to push it back in. <laughs> no, you, you, you get this thing. And what it does is it sucks out all the oxygen in there, which ruins the wine. Uh-huh. It just sucks it all out and uh, pull it out. And you can see, let me put this. Now you see those lights going on? Uh-huh. It's sucking the oxygen out right now. Makes a little humming sound. 
that's because there's not much wine left in there. We'll finish this one off and pop another one before the show's over. Trust me. Nice. I like that. I need to give me one of those. But I, my wife always says, I don't know why you even bothered dirty in a glass. Just drink it straight out of the bottle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was having, uh, I was just in Chicago earlier. Uh, let's see, we're in July. Okay. Last month, I was in Chicago, and I met some. Uh, I went back there to do some speaking. It was a fundraising event for wounded uh, veterans and surviving family members of cops killed in the line of duty. So I went back there, made some friends, great people from Chicago. I can't stop talking about the cops back there, and met one guy that sent me home with a mason jar, like a jar of mayonnaise of homemade moonshine oh man and the stuff was good and it didn't taste like you know i think a moonshine i've tasted it before and that's nasty rough stuff man you get uh, drink it or get it and rub it on your elbow you know it is it's it's cure-all and this stuff was smooth tasted like apple you know okay. so like an apple martini and it was yeah. even my wine who's a non-drinker i said taste it you know come on just one little one little cachito, she tasted, oh, this ain't bad. She didn't have any more, but at least <laughs> she tasted it. Well, I just got two more bottles sent back to me. They sent two more jars last wow. week. And I took one to a 4th of July little barbecue. Of my, my wife's primo side of the family. We were down there, and one youngster said, oh, man, this is bad. And they kept egging him on. And I just kept laughing. I said, toma, mijo, go ahead, have some more, have some more. And my daughter was making me, hey, go ahead and drink. Your wife's not here. She said, Nobody's going to get in trouble. <laughs> and his, his dad is a good friend of mine, and his dad was there. And his dad hasn't touched the drop uh, in 30 years. And his dad used to be a heavy partier, and I'm just laughing at him. And his dad's going, I, Gil. I said, well, shit, I haven't stopped drinking. Got to get there. Before you know it, the guy was puking all over the place. And I'm just laughing. I'm laughing. It was funny. I mean, he wasn't going to drive. We had somebody take care of him. He just washed him up. And I'm saying, come on, cabrón. You can do yeah. this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So I've never had, like, true homemade uh, moonshine, like the like the stuff that people make on their own. Like, I've had it, the ones that they sell at the store, things like that. But there, there was one that I had for my birthday years ago, and it kind of reminds me of that. Uh this one guy brought it and it was moonshine, strawberry moonshine. So there was strawberries in the moonshine. And one of my friends, all he ate was the strawberries. He's now nah, he's all good. That's all I'm going to have. He didn't even make it to the bar. Like he entered, paid his cover. And as soon as he walked in, had to be kicked out. He got kicked out walking in. Oh. And so he ended up back at the hotel, throw up everywhere from what I was told. I was like, it's my birthday. I'm staying and I'm staying and hanging out. <laughs> but yeah, he ended up like hotel throwing up, getting washed all over the. Yeah, he, well, yeah, yeah. He had a rough night, and all he ate was the strawberries. So I can imagine. <laughs> oh, it's good. It's all worth. But and and the guy is not the kid that I'm talking about. I mean, he's not a 21 year old kid. This guy's in his late 40s, but he wanted to macho up and be man. And we kept on. I kept poking sticks at him. Don't be afraid, Mijo. You can do this. Come on. You can hang with the big boys. And I watched them fall down. 
And when everybody's laughing at him, because he puked, I said, I got your bag, mijo. Let these other guys, they didn't drink any. They're all a bunch of wusses. They didn't care. Hey, you're a man. <laughs> Proud. <laughs> That's what's up. And then you take care of them. That's what it's like. Yeah. You watch out for them. And like you said, he wasn't driving. Put up in your party. Why not? Mm-hmm. That's it. <laughs> um, let me ask you before I forget, because it was like, it was like the very first thing watching the documentary. I got to ask him about this. They introduced you as someone that they called El Cucuy. Why did they call you El Cucuy? When I was a patrol deputy, I'd been out there for a few years. We went out on a uh, prowler call, and we were the backup unit, so we went there second. The handling unit was a friend of mine, but he sent his trainee. His trainee was a guy that had just been promoted to sergeant but took off his stripes because he hadn't been in patrol a while. He says, I want to get back into this patrol stuff before I'm telling the guys what to do. So he went around one end of the apartment and on, when he was coming around to meet me, I got behind some bushes. And when he got close, I jumped out and screamed and I grabbed his hands because I knew he'd go for his gun right away. So I screamed and grabbed his guns. He's shitting his pants and he <laughs> screamed and he started backing up. And then after, after we all had a good laugh, he says, all I could think of was the cuckoo got me. You know, obviously he was a Latino. The Kukui got me. He started calling me Kukui, and pretty soon, before you know it, even the gang members on the streets, because where I worked in East LA, it was a barrio, and the kids from the barrio were calling me the Kukui. Don't let the Kukui get you, you know. So that name stuck with me all these years. Even though I'm retired, I see old guys. Hey, there's a Kukui. What's up, Kukui? And 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 the my Anglo friends would call me Kukui. Kukui. <laughs> that's a that's a, that's a that's a badass nickname to get, especially when you start getting like the the gang members and all like everybody to buy in. Yeah, I, I was a kukui. It made me almost. And then because of my background in life and true life, because uh, you know, a cop took me home when I was seventeen years old. And told my parents, sign for him to get off the streets or live better in prison. And that cop actually saved my life because my parents signed for me. I went in the army, ended up in Vietnam. I come back. I have a new appreciation on life. I want to give back what that cop gave to me. I wanted to go to college. And I knew I was mature because when I sent for my high school transcripts, I was embarrassed because I thought D stood for damn good you know, <laughs> at that time. But they let me in because I was a Vietnam vet. And I just wanted that, that cop that took me home, actually saved my life. So I wanted to do that for kids out on the streets and anybody I could. And I knew the streets because I would stand out there on the corner. You know, so what the local the sky blue? I said, where are you from? Donde? You know, I could hang with the best of them. Well, now I'm dealing with gang members out there. And now just like them, just like a flaco and also you know, grumpy, little grumpy. I've got a nickname. I'm the Kukui. What's up, Kukui? Uh, you, you tell me, Veneno, what's up? <laughs> so, and, and I'd even give some guy, there was one guy, can't remember his real name, but he had his teeth knocked out. He had front teeth. And I said, so it's okay, you got a new placa. And he said, what's that? I said, TW. And he said, TW. I said, yeah, Toothless Wonder. That's you, brother. <laughs> T.W. And so he was all proud. Hey, I'm T.W. Hey, so it, it was good. 
my past helped me out. I know growing up in a police family, or, you know, my dad, I got to meet all kinds of police officers, and that you had some that were, like, super strict, and you can't you can't get away with nothing and then some that were also super strict but they remember what it was like when they were kids or whatever so they kind of like no nah, i'm not gonna put you in for like this little pendejada like i'm gonna you know yeah not yeah. let it slide but at the same time not gonna ruin you know you know you have a choice like and so that's really cool that you did that and uh, or that that guy did that for you which in later in life it turned out and and all kinds of like good good things uh with the other thing el kukui some would say some compare kukui for people that don't know what kukui is they compare it to the boogeyman but yes i would say you know growing up hispanic growing up mexican i would say el kukui is worse than the boogeyman because el kukui comes at, at daytime or nighttime it don't matter oh. what time it is I thought there were two things you didn't want to mess with. You didn't want to mess with the Kukui and you didn't want to fuck with the Yorona. Oh, the Yorona was, was terror. And, and give me some tequila. Hey, one tequila and I'll start seeing her. Two tequilas, three tequila, I'll stop dancing with her. <laughs> Ew, La Yorona, man. I don't know. Every bridge, there's no, there's every, every, every city has a bridge. Where La Llorona exists. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, there was one. I remember there was this one. Um, so I'm from Eagle Pass. That's my hometown. I live in San Antonio. Well, e- Eagle Pass? Eagle Pass, Texas. So it's a small border town. Um, but I, 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 I came to college in San Antonio, stayed here. But I would drive through Uvalde, which right now we know Uvalde or Uvalde oh, because of what yeah. happened. Yeah. Sure. So, you know, Uvalde obviously is in the, well, for people to know, it's in the middle between San Antonio and Eagle Pass. But there's a bridge, and I think it's right before you get to Uvalde from Eagle Pass. And everybody, oh, La Llorona, La Llorona right there, you know, you, don't stop on the bridge. Don't stop. Things get weird, and not, uh, it just happens to be like also the most the most darkest place between Eagle Pass and Ovalda. And I never bought into this stuff. Like I, I grew up with Lesson La Llorona, and I got scared. And then Kukui. I think the Kukui still haunts me. Like I always close the closet door because I'm a Kukui. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm gonna have to close the close the closet door for. In case Gilbert's there, El Kukui, the real Kukui. Uh, <laughs> no. Now, I, I, I don't want to interrupt you, but I got to say, what a good wife I had. Right now, I was busy. I, I texted her while I was talking to you because the first bottle was empty. So I texted <laughs> her. I said, could you, could you bring me another bottle? And so I am now sporting the bottle of Joel Gott. Joel Gott. Same man. thing, Cabernet Sauvignon. This one's also a California wine up in the same wine country area. It's very good. And let me, let me see. It's also a two. What a lucky, <laughs> what a lucky guy I am. <laughs> it's also a two. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? The cool thing about that was like the, the seamless handoff because never does she come in screen or anything like that. Oh, no. She won't come fun. on screen. 
it took almost an act of Congress in the uh, documentary. My wife is in the documentary. She did not want to do it at all. She's an introvert. I call her affectionately Sister Mary Clarence. She's the nice one, the religious one. You know, you see the old cartoons, the angel over here said, no, don't do it. Don't do it. I'm the devil on this side saying, do it, do it, do it, do it. Right now, when you were talking to me and I finished that first bottle, I I texted her real quick. She was in the other room. I said, could you please get me another bottle of wine? She brought it in. She won't go on camera. She did not want to do the documentary. And I, and I, and I asked her, I said, here, I can't force you to be in the documentary. I'm asking you because just think of the good. It'll be for other wives of other cops. They'll be able to see this, what you went through and it'll be able to help them. Well, she did it. And I've had so many people come up and tell me, Hey, she stole the show. You know, she was honest. It was touching. She was sincere. And so we've been, uh, well, when I came out of the army, I had three goals, one to go to college, one to become a cop. Third one was to hook up with my ex-girlfriend that dumped me when I was in Vietnam. She gave me a dear John and man, my quote, son was broke. I mean, here I am fighting over there, nothing. And now she's going out with some other chango over here. You know, that, that was, that was terrible. So when I got out of the army, that third goal was to get hooked back up with my ex-girlfriend, get her eating out of the palm of my hand so I could dump her ass like she dumped mine. I wanted revenge. Revenge was going to be mine, brother. And I know that upsets your female listeners out there, but I wanted to get even with her. I got hey, out. They get revenge on us all the time. Let's get one yeah. on them. <laughs> so I, I, I got out in June of 70. By September 70, I had her eight down in the palm of my hand. The day after Christmas, 1970, boom, yeah, we got married. And we just celebrated. We had our 51st wedding anniversary this last December. Oh, congratulations. So she's, she's the, it, it's all on her, brother. She's the glue that has kept this family together. She's always been a stay-at-home mom. Uh, because of that, we ain't had shit, but we live comfortably. We're happy. And she's the glue that keeps everything together. So 51 years of she brought me my bottle of wine right now. And I'm just fortunate. Uh, I'm lucky to have her. I must have missed it. So did you get revenge or was she your ex? No, she was my ex. Oh, Two okay. out of three. I got I got a cop. I went to college. But, and I keep reminding her, hey, I'm still working on number three, baby. You know, it's not it's not too late. <laughs> hey, it might be coming. <laughs> yes, right. I I, um, I go do a lot of public speaking now, and she got I was speaking in Vegas in uh let's see, May. Beginning of May, I was in Las Vegas, and it was a 45-minute talk, and it was for uh shit, I think A and E or somebody, I think they were the sponsors of this whole thing. It was a big deal. Over 5,000 people attending the conference. So I got up there and spoke. And I spoke for 45 minutes. And so I said, hey, you want to hear what I said? Here it is. And so I put it on TV. And she listened to it. And she complained, well, how come you always got to see bad things about me? Why are you going to die? I said, dear, it's entertainment. You know, it's just funny to keep their attention. It's not stuff that I mean. Come on. And because I said in there, you know, you stop thinking about it. 51 years. If I had killed her that first year of marriage, I'd already been out of the joint. <laughs> Hey, or vice versa, man. We got to get, like, I know we give our women a lot of grief, so they don't kill us. 
we must be doing something right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, which which goes into this true crime stuff. Uh, I hear more and more of all all these women listening to uh, a show called Snap, where it's like women killing their husbands. <laughs> yeah, I, my when my slammed out, my my wife's uh, mother once. My wife's father died. She moved in with us. We brought her here to live with us for, she was here about six years before she passed. And her and my wife would watch Snapped all the time. And I'd sit there and remind him, I said, you go ahead and think of ways. But look at this. Snap, they always get caught. They always get caught. None of them go free. You're going to suffer more than I am because you kill me. Hey, my problems are over with. But now you got to live with the rest of it. So. <laughs> And she doesn't know how to use a gun, nor do I want her to learn how to use a gun. <laughs> I think I think I'm more more nervous to the ones that would watch Hallmark, uh, which is my oh, wife. Oh. That's what she does. She watches the Hallmarks. I'm like, uh, she's plotting how to get rid of me for sure. <laughs> uh. Uh, okay, so going back to your wife being in the documentary, I think that's definitely one things that one of the things that captured my attention because you know obviously this is close to home and the fact with my dad being a police officer but never did he have to go through like a serial killer kind of thing you know in a small town and i guess border town there was it has its dangers it being a border town um but in a small town everybody knew you so i couldn't get away with anything like whatever i did whether if it was good or bad my dad already knew about it because people knew him. <clears throat> so what always scared me was like, how do they, how, how did we not even think about shit? They know my dad's a police officer. He's done, he's captured people. He's put people away or he's given, even at the very least, given somebody a ticket, then probably made them angry, ruined their day or whatever. Being a small town, they clearly have to know where we live and who we are. And but never once did I really worry about like a lot of things like that until I started getting older. But for you guys, you know, LA, it's huge. But at the same time, there's a lot. So there, there's more people of maybe the revenge kind of thing or wanting to get revenge. And then working your uh, case like yours. How does your family deal with stuff like that? Like knowing, or how do you even deal with knowing, hey, my family, they know, do they know where I live? Are they going to come after my family or anything like that? Is that even the kind of thing you think about? Yeah. about? No, you know, because I, I tried to treat even the worst of the worst uh, murder suspects the way I'd like to be treated if I were in their shoes. And I think I was humble enough then and i and i tell every cop that wants to become a cop or that wants to go to homicide bureau or even thinking about becoming a cop uh one of the first things you have to learn is never forget where you came from because that's important in your life treat people the way you like to be treated have the understanding that everybody does something for a reason i don't care if it's rape i don't care if it's murder i don't care if it's molestation they do it for a reason don't condone it just understand it and if you do that, it makes it a lot easier to do the job. Having said that, then what I try to do, because of the nature, out of 38 years in law enforcement, 26 of those years were spent working homicide bureau. 
And the nature of the business is it's a very confidential job. So I can't talk about what's going on in this case today because who knows when. A small world, I told you, I, I think I mentioned, I was just back in Chicago a couple of weeks ago talking for these guys. And one guy comes up and he remembers he met my daughter when he was out here from Chicago because some Chicago cop went to high school with my daughter before he moved back to Chicago. And so they came out here, contacted her. Hey, can you get somebody show us around, you know, show us a little bit. They were out here for a Chicago bears game. And so got him to one of the substations, got him some shirts, told him what restaurant called him. My buddy, hey, get him over here. Let's take care of these people. Well, it's a very small world. So if I come home and start talking about one of my murderers and my daughter or my son talks to somebody that they went to high school with that is now living in New York, well, they've got phones. They come back and forth. And before you know it, there's shit all over the place. So everything was very confidential. So I, did, I kept work and family separated because I never forgot where I came from. I was not hesitant to go to the, you know, it. You go to the Mexican party sometimes with the familia, and you know how they turn. You know, people get all borracho, they get loose, and so you got to watch. But but you never forget where you came from. Those are my roots. Okay, well, let's go back there and have some fun. Today, I'm not a cop. Today, I'm a family man. I'm a friend, and I don't do anything in violation of the law. And if most of the time, <laughs> most of the time I have a designated driver and thank God, you know, that's the way it is all the time now. But before then, uh, I, I was very, very fortunate. I don't condone any of that stuff. I just understand it. But it was, that's how I kept things separate from my family. When I had a long talk with my son. Uh, he was in his late teens, early 20s. And we had a man, it was early 20s. We had a man-to-man talk. And he said, well, dad, you never told me anything about what you were doing, what was going on. I had to explain it. Son, I couldn't. This is why I can't talk to you about this stuff. They didn't know. So I was able to keep work and family separate. And that's the way it had to be. And so it worked out for me. And and fortunately, I had a strong wife to keep everything else together. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely a good thing. Um, I know my mom kept the in line for sure. <laughs> um, and that's true. I don't think I've ever really talked to my dad about his cases. I don't think he ever even told us anything. And again, small town, so nothing like LA. But yeah, uh, it, it, it really didn't matter. I never talked. My kids, you know, I was in Vietnam and I was in some heavy, heavy, you know, combat stuff. I've never talked about Vietnam to my kids. And, and I never talked about police work to my kids. There was just nothing to talk about. And then earlier this year, February this year, I met up in Arizona with, I was there to speak in Arizona. And one of my pilots who I've been looking for for years, we found each other on Facebook and it'd been 53 years since I seen him. And I love the man. I respected him. And we hooked up in Phoenix, Arizona. A, a, a friend of my son's who had gone to school with him here, gone on to college, was now the director of news for, the NBC affiliate in uh, Phoenix and they arranged, they called, reached out. Hey, can we film this? This is big time stuff. Knowing that you're meeting your old pilot. And so I got to meet my pilot in over 53 years. They were there when we met, we hugged. I cried like a baby 
it was, it was very, very, and he did too, very, very touching. But it was the first time they'd ever seen anything like this. They don't know about what kind of combat missions we were flying and what we did. Uh, you know, we were lucky. Pray that you just made it back alive, back to the airbase, much much less make it back home to see the family again. Yeah. And sure. as it turns out, one of my, one of my pilots uh, that I flew with in Vietnam turns out we just found out a few years ago he lives in the same city I'm living in now. And we bumped into each other by accident, and I introduced him to my family, and there he is crying, and we're crying together. And he said, Mrs. Carrillo, he said, I want you to understand. He says, these are tears, not only of joy, but my heart, because we didn't know if we were going to make it back home alive, much less to have the ability to come back and see each other and meet our families. I never thought this day would come. And, and so here we are. So it was so I just I kept everything away from my family, all yeah. the bad stuff. I don't know if we, like I know my dad loved his job. You know, like I, he everything. Like I don't think like he lived and breathed being a police officer. But yeah, he never really. But I don't know if I also wanted to ask those kind of questions. Like I think when he came home, he was his dad. You know, um, that, that's all it was. The only I, thing my I I don't know if you have any sisters. But my daughters learned uh, when they became of age and they started going out, uh, they stopped telling people who their dad was. Because as soon as, you know, they'd meet other guys, they'd find out who their dad was. Other cops would sit there and say, oh, see you later. You know, they want nothing <laughs> to do with my daughter because everybody knew the kukui. Yeah. <laughs> and so they, they didn't want to do it. And a very, a very good friend of mine, and, and, and he lost his life. He got murdered on the job. Uh, he was a boxer, and I used to be a ring announcer for the department. And I come home from a murder one night. It's about 2 in the morning. I drive up, and he's sitting out in front of my house with my daughter in the car. And she was an adult. You know, she was in her 20s already. And they'd been out on the date. They're out there talking. And I didn't even look at them. I didn't want to say hi. I didn't want to cause it. I don't want them to know. It's like I'm just ignore them. And I walked in the house. I said, good night. About two weeks later, I ran into the kid and he comes and he says, Hey Gil, he said, I'm so sorry, man. I didn't know that was your daughter. And I said, Hey Jerry, she's an adult. You're an adult. You guys make your own decisions. You don't have to apologize to me. I just went in. I didn't want to bother you guys. You know, you do what you got to do. And then he ended up getting um, killed in the line of duty. So that's just the way things were. Yeah. No, that's so they stopped telling them. They stopped telling people that their dad was a cop. Well, I almost I did I did both of them. I did where I avoided saying my last name because then I was like, oh, you're his son, you're so and so's son. And my dad doesn't like social media, so that's why I don't say his name. But um uh but yeah, I would never say my last name in certain cases because of that. But then if I was in kind of trouble, I would say, I, that's when I'm like, hey. My dad's so and so. They're like, okay. <laughs> Not that I was doing like anything stupid, like really yeah, illegal. Yeah, stuff, yeah. It ever came down no, to I, it. I know. <laughs> my kids, uh, my kids knew. Don't they? They didn't want to bother the cops by using the name because I told them I ain't going to get you out of trouble. You know, you got in, you get yourself out, and. 
I can remember one of my kids used my name and I heard, and I heard about it, you know, cause they the courtesy call, Hey, this is what happened. This is what's going on. This is your daughter. And I said, all right. You know, and I had another call for some guy had stopped my daughter. One of my daughters was speeding. And so they had the best call of mine. And I was out on an emergency. They said, Hey Gil, got a cop, got your daughter stopped for speeding. You want him to write her a ticket or no. And then I got pissed off. I said, you tell that no balls piece of shit, do what he has to do. That's what he gets paid to do. I'm busy right now if he, because I know it. If I say write her a ticket, well, he's going to write her a ticket. If I say don't write her a ticket, he's going to tell her. I was going to write her a ticket, but Gil Creel said don't. Oh, I said, yeah, that's the have worst. The, ha, have the balls to do what you got to do. And don't bother me with your pendejadas. If you can't make a decision, don't ask me to make your decision for you. Yeah. And I was pissed that he even bothered me with it. But they, they didn't, you know, they, on the night of my retirement party, I remember one of my daughters got through all pissed off. She got a ticket on the way down there, but she wouldn't tell them about me. She wouldn't tell me. And then fortunately, uh, my compa was there and he worked the station where she got the ticket at. And he says, we'll get it taken care of. Not, not, not to worry, but uh, how they did it. I have no idea. I want to know part of it. You know, we'll look into it is what he said. We'll look into it. But I wouldn't get my kids out for uh, any problems like that. Yeah, you get yourself in, you get yourself out. Yeah, I think my dad, I, I always remember my dad said, you only get one. You only get one. But after that, that's it. And luckily, not till I was older, not, I, didn't, I didn't have to use the one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, 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 one of my daughters... And, and and she's probably going to hear it. She's working in another room. She can hear what I'm saying right now. <laughs> but she received the ticket, and I kept asking, hey, have you taken care of that ticket? Have you taken care of that ticket? And she had told me, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. And I, I happened to walk in her room, and I saw the ticket. I said, this ticket ain't been taken care of. Come on, let's go. I took her down to the courthouse, and I knew the court clerk back in the back. I knew the people back in traffic. I went back and said, stay out here. So I went back to her. I said, hey. Where's this ticket at? You know, we're here today. And he says, oh, okay, not a problem. Guilty found it. He says, oh, shit, here it is. It's in this stack. This, these tickets are going in the computer as a warrant today because they haven't oh. been taken care of. He says, and your daughter's is right here. Do you want to pay it right now? And he says, or do you want a continuance on it? He says, your daughter's here. Why don't you just pay it right now? I said, no. Give her a continuance on it. I went back outside and I told her. I said, okay, it's taken care of. She says, oh, you, you took care of that? I said, no, no. You're going to come back and take care of it. You're going to stand in line like everybody else out here paying traffic tickets. You're not going to cut the line because of me, and I'm not going to take care of it. So you'll come back on your own time, stand in line, and take care of the ticket. That's what I did for you because it was getting ready to go to warrant. So they they had to learn. They got to do things on their own. Yeah. I I – my mom would always say, don't do anything that's going to embarrass your dad. So luckily, never got into like crazy trouble. Never even got a ticket in Eagle Pass. And I say that not going to work because I don't want to have to be driving down 35 years old now, getting a ticket in Eagle Pass. Um, but yeah, um, one of the things that, um, oh, dang, I forgot what I was going to say now. Another drink of beer. There you go. Uh, a little reminder no so I never got on a ticket but oh that's what I was uh, <laughs> hey it worked <laughs> I remember 
So when I was saying that I've never used my dad's name like like for like really crazy things, there was only two times, uh, maybe three, but uh, two of them were the same thing. Uh, since it's a border town, I would always cross to Mexico. Either I have family in Mexico. I was Mexican born, born in Mexico. Dad, U.S. citizen. Uh, so I was naturalized as soon as I was born. But anyway, family in Mexico, I would go and visit them. Or I would simply just go get my hair cut in Mexico. So, but coming back, customs would always give me the hardest time. Because I do get to say, hey, I'm a U.S. citizen. But then when they ask me, where were you born? I was born in Mexico. So that's where it's always like the back and forth. Well, how are you a U.S. citizen? Or, and why? And then go into the whole explanation. And one, like two moments, they never believed me. And they were like, no, you're not. You're like, we need proof. There's more. I don't have any more proof. Um, this was before like needing a passport every time you said, like before you were just U.S. citizen and then they wave you by or at the very least showing your ID. So I, I think I showed my ID. It's like, this is what I have. And I think at the time I was already in college. So here in San Antonio, I was visiting. So anyways, long story short, it got real bad. They were trying to like get me to the back. I'm like, dude, I'm not going to the back with you. I'm a U.S. citizen. And I've always, I tried losing my accent, my, you know, Mexican accent, getting rid of mm -hmm. it. And I think it's not completely gone, but for the most part, it turned into its own weird thing. It's like a Texan accent. It's a Mexican accent. And it's just like George doesn't open his mouth kind of accent. It, it's more Texan to me than Mexican. <laughs> well, well, and I, that's all from really trying to get rid of it, um, which now I regret. But anyways, going back to that, I even got upset that the guy asking me questions had a Mexican accent. I was like, dude, you have a Mexican accent. I know. I'm just and I was like, where are you from? And I went like that. I was like, where are you from then? And so like that was it. I was like, you're going to the back. We're going. And he's like, no, no, we're not. And then I threw my dad's name. And that's when like, oh, no, I'm sorry. Like, I, we didn't realize it. And all that stuff. And I was like, oh, man. Like, I, and I feel like shitty is like having to get to that point for the reason that I hate that I had to use my dad's name because, you know, whatever. Like, it's like such a crappy, you know, you know who my dad is kind of thing. It's such a movie star thing to say. <laughs> uh, but it's uh, but also like I felt like demean. I was like, dude, come on, man. Like. Clearly, there's nothing going on, but whatever. That's a, a whole other thing. And then the second time was a police officer. I don't know if he was, like, just new to the area or what. He got mad at me for crossing in front of him in a parking lot, crossing in front of him. And he stopped me, even turned on the lights. My dad was sitting inside the restaurant the whole time. Uh, he's like, come over. But like, he's, like, really going in on me, yelling at me and, I'm just like, dude, I was just, well, I didn't say dude. I was like, oh, it's, I was taught to say yes or no, sir. And I was like, sir, I was just crossing, you know, and he's like, I think he was trying to say I was jaywalking. I was like, it's not a jaywalking. I'm in a parking lot, sir. You know, anyways, it got so bad. She was like, I can arrest you right now if you want. I can ticket you and I can arrest you if I wanted to. And I was like, well, go ahead. But before you do, why don't you go talk to my dad? He's inside the restaurant at so-and-so. 
And he's like, oh, no. And that was the other time. That's the only two times. And I was like, this so shitty in a way, like doing it. Well, he should. You shouldn't decide that private property. You can't state your private property. No, yeah, exactly. And I didn't. I I told my dad. I, we know. I went back into the restaurant. We ate. And coming out, I was like, "Hey, dad, do you know so and so?" I was like, "Nah." And he was like, "Well, this guy was just trying to arrest me and or ticket me." And uh, I said, "He was like, well, you should have let him. You should have let him." And then when and I would have said, "It's like I was inside the restaurant. It would have been embarrassing." It was like he doesn't know what he's doing. Like, yeah, yeah, it's private property. You can't cite, you can't arrest, you know, for some traffic violations anyway. <laughs> but yeah, that's a that's a whole thing and with that name stuff. Um well definitely going off the rails. Let's go back to the documentary a little bit. <laughs> Let's go back to the documentary then. So the other thing that I really found really interesting from the documentary was that you kind of made that connection, the shoe connection. And I don't know, you know, maybe DNA in the 80s was not that big. There was no DNA in the We had no DNA then. It was through the we had The shoe print was a very big item to me. I can tell you today in 2022, still from memory, without equivocation, on January 9, 1985, 1,356 pair model 440 Avias arrived in New York from Taiwan for distribution throughout the U.S., of which six pair ended up in the state of California. One pair ended up in the city of Los Angeles. And so that footprint was, became a very important piece of evidence for us. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I can't believe even you guys found that out that that there was only one, and the likelihood of one pair. I figured L.A. would have yeah. at least a hundred. It was a brand new shoe. If had it been a Reebok or a Nike or an Adidas, yes, but it was a brand new shoe. And we sent uh, our criminals up to Oregon to meet Mr. Jerry Stubblefield, who was the Oregon uh, track coach, and he held the patent on the shoe. We learned everything we could about the patent. We sent him up there. Then we put two guys on, hey, track this shoe down. And that's how we find it. Plus, it was easier. It was a black pair. There weren't many black pairs out there like that. And so that's how we were able to track it down. And just to show that leave no, leave nothing, no, no rock unturned. You know, if you, you look everything you can, you put everything in. And back then, we didn't have DNA. And back then, fingerprints weren't automated like they are today. There was a lot of things that weren't there. And it just relied on other means, hard work. I remember when I pulled two guys were on their day off, two homicide investigators on their day off, and they were out golfing. And I said, time to come back to work. We need you right now. And they weren't happy. So what do you want us to do? I said, find this footprint. Find the shoe that goes with this footprint. And they said, where do we start? I said, I don't give a shit. Start at the Orange County border. And work your way west through L.A. County. This is what we need to find right now. And so they did. They found it. They did good work. The That guy was later described as the intrepid John Yarbrough. He uh, took care of all our evidence. And I told him, I told one of my friends, because John was, he was a brainiac. And I said, watch this. I'm going to tell John that his, his name will go down in history because in closing arguments the DA said the intrepid John and as soon as I tell him that he's going to look up the word intrepid see what's going on 
So I came back and I said, hey, you just made your name forever in the books. I mean, he said it in closing argument. And I walked out and we turned around and looking at him. He's got the dictionary out, looking up and tripping. <laughs> what did it mean? You know, so, so we knew it was important to him. He was good at what he did. Yeah, he was, he was good at what he did. And he was very, very instrumental in helping us keep track of all of our evidence. Well, and I probably should have said, I, spoiler alert, if you haven't watched the documentary, watch it. But um, the reason the reason that stuck with me and was because at first nobody believed you and I was like, or nobody wanted to give you the time of day to like that theory or to give that theory a time of day, you know, sure. it was like, oh, it's too much. But I was like, uh, my mind went to like, dang, do they not believe him? Cause he's Brown or is it like, or is it just too far fetched or where is it? Where are we sitting out here? Like, did you get in my, so, Real question is like, and I I told you too hard too fast. We're gonna ask the questions that try not to ask you, somebody else. All. You is, you ask the hard questions. I'll give you the real answers from my heart. Yeah. Whether it's speculation, true or not, there were three reasons why. Number one, I was young, and I had only been there four years. My first seven years there, I think I was the youngest guy in homicide bureau. It took an average of 15 years, it still does today, to get the Sheriff's Homicide Bureau. I was there in nine and a half years. So, number one, I was young. Number two, nobody in criminal history has had ever, and to this day, still hasn't been documented doing the things that I was alleging Richard was doing. And the reason it hasn't been replicated or copied is because we kept a lot of the kitty stuff out of the news. So they're not aware of it. And then number three, part of it was that Brown thing. You know, there weren't that many Hispanics in the, in the bureau. And when you stop to think about it, we just celebrated our hundred year anniversary of Sheriff's Homicide Bureau last month. And in 19, no, shit. 2004, I was the first lieutenant, first man above the rank of sergeant to ever work Sheriff's Homicide Bureau. And so somebody's going to try and convince me there was never a Latino worthy enough. And so I, I've got to believe that under, and, 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 and I've never thought of that because I've been asked the question before in police work. I never looked at white partners, black partners, Mexican partners, Asian partners. There was no color. They're my partner. And everybody's the same. But when you look at the background now, when I look at it historically, uh, there had to be, you know, hey, maybe this and this Latino just trying to, young punk trying to make a name for himself. But it turned out that I was right. And so that blew out the Brown theory, you know, and it blew out the young theory. It blew out all their theory, you know, why? And I turned out to be right. And that's what, and the director of the documentary is quoted. I've, I've read quotes from him in different magazines where he said, let's make no doubt about it. This documentary was highlighted. Gil Career was highlighted because it was him 
that came up with the idea, the him that came up with the theory, him that didn't give up, and him that persevered and was right. And when the documentary aired, when I saw it, it's the first time I ever heard my partner, Frank Salerno, say, who I have nothing but respect and admiration for. Uh, he was the guru. He was the leader. He was great. It's the first time I had I ever heard him say where he said, you know what? Hey, Gil was right. Never told me that. Never said anything like that. Uh, it's the first time I heard it. That, to me, was a victory. And, you know, I asked that question not to make a, you know, of course, we, I'm tired of, of, you know, Hispanics, Latinos, whatever, Chicano, whatever, anybody, Mexican-Americans, whatever they you want to call yourself. I'm tired of the community just bowling, pulling ourselves back down. Like, we know that shit. We know, like, as soon as you're being somebody's like, ah, ¿quién te crees? Or, oh, ahora te crees mucho. It's like, who are you? Or now you think you're the big shot. It's like, I'm tired of like, every, like pulling ourselves back down. So, yes, my my biggest, I have a, my goal here is like to broaden all kinds of perspectives. I have talked to a whole bunch of people on here, been lucky to. But my biggest thing also from that, aside from that, is to bring the brown community back up. To be one of the instead of bringing us back down, bring them back up. So, I think that's why when I saw that, that's a question. Not because I feel like, oh, it is because we're brown. No, it's not just. But it's a thought. It's like, is it that? I don't know. It could be. But I want. I there's no way I can just say that. And I'm thinking maybe there's other people saying that on the couch watching. It's like, oh, it's because he's brown. So I wanted to hear from you. Like, I was like, maybe I'm wrong. No, and, and, and I don't think that, that that was just an underlying theory. Today, to this day, there is no, I look at a homicide investigator today, and I don't give a shit what color they are. You're either good, or you're the greatest, or you're just, you know, I, I guess I, I want to say it was Leo DeRocher, the old baseball manager and coach, was quoted as saying one time, he they, I don't want to say quote because I'm not sure. I, I think it was Leo DeRocher. When asked by uh, a news news reporter, what do you think of these rookies? What do you, your baseball team out there right now? And he said, well, look at that guy over there. He's 23 years old. He says, in three years, he's going to be great. See that rookie over there? He's 23 years old. In three years, he's going to be 26. And that's about all I can say. So, those people up there, I don't look at them in, in versions of color, white, brown, black, or anything. Are you good? Are you not good? I can understand why people didn't believe in me because nobody in criminal history had ever been documented doing the things that I was alleging. And so it didn't bother me that they thought that. It bothered me with some, when I heard some of them were calling me Navy, I'm my back, young punk trying to make a name for himself. Yeah. And just knowing that the leaders that were not willing to accept none of them were Latinos, you know, and, and I'm not, I'm not siding with Latinos. I'm just saying that's the way it was. Things are different today. Things are much different today than they were when I was there and in representation of ethnicity, everything. Uh, I still believe in the Homicide Bureau. I understand why they didn't believe in me at the time. Uh, it would have been tough. Have been, one of my best friends, a guy named Ray Verdugo, 
who, when I was young and impressionable, I asked the lieutenant, put me with them. I wanted them to polish me up. And we're still the best of friends today. We go out to lunch. He confessed to me. He says, you know, Gil, in the beginning, he says, I didn't believe in you. I really didn't. But you proved all of us wrong. But Ray never badmouthed me either. It was a tough pill to swallow when I was allergic. And yeah. one of the guys that did believe in me, one of my best friends, and I was his best man at two out of three of his marriages, uh, Don Garcia. He's the guy that broke me in at homicide. He believed in me. He sat in my motor home and listened to radio calls coming out and strategized. He's a great guy. So a few guys believed in me, but most didn't. And it was easy to be a non-believer. But today, things are entirely different. I still believe in the Bureau. Well, the other thing is that you you don't want to be the one that thinks he's right and ends up being wrong versus the guy that's like, mm, I don't know, that like goes along with the, well, there's still a lot more to find out. And then being like, oh, yeah, I guess that was right. So good thing we checked it out first. Like, you know. Yeah. But um, the other thing I want to say is like, uh, Gil, if you ever throw out a quote from somebody again, uh, feel free to knowing that this is too hard, too fast, and we don't check facts. So. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, so don't check facts. I'm in the Guinness Book of Record, World Records having the longest sex drive in America today. There you go. That might be true. We don't check them here on too hard, too fast. <laughs> Uh, maybe the people that are watching, they might comment and say, Meh. but nah, that's nah. for them to do. Not for us. We are here on our second beer. <laughs> it's officially a two beer show. There you go. Told you. It's all getting better. <laughs> um, the Okay. So the other thing that really interest, interested me was like, you, and you said it, was that this this guy was not doing something that traditionally the uh, other serial killers were doing like that. Like they didn't, he yes. didn't have a trend or something, a pattern. Um, so I thought that was nuts. But um, I, I, the question for that is like how frustrating or, or stressful was the feeling that every time you went out to a call, it could have been him or it could have been somebody else. Was there like ever a feeling like we could be missing somebody else? Somebody else is going out, going free because we're still trying to worry about, is this the, our guy? It, it was difficult and we didn't worry about anybody else's cases. We worried about ours. You know, uh, I worked up there in a bureau where there was probably at that time about 90 homicide investigators working. I didn't care about anybody else's cases. I only worried about my cases. And so your word, is this one connected to the last one? And this one isn't. And so you have to wait sometimes. Uh, if, you saw the, if you saw the shoe print, boom. Mm. And a lot of the surviving victims all had the same uh, physical description. Tall, thin, light-skinned, Hispanic, or uh, Caucasian, disheveled hair, stained-gap teeth, pungent and odor. And so you had the same things going around. It's just that it was hard because his only consistency was his inconsistency. He sometimes killed with a knife, sometimes used a gun, sometimes blood force trauma, sometimes manual strangulation, sometimes ligature strangulation. 
a machete. He did it all. And so it was tough. So you'd look for little things. And when you go to a crime scene, uh, everything becomes very scientific. And you look at it at that time very closely. And I was just watching one of these programs that my wife watches all, all the time. And it was like 48 hours or one of those programs. <laughs> and the new detective was going in there. She'd only been a homicide detective for six months. And she says the first thing she noticed was things didn't look right in the garage. And so she went on in and then she went in the house and then she saw stairs and she saw something that looked messed up down the bottom of the stairs. So she went up the stairs and then she looked in the bedroom and she could see the crack of the door. There's a victim in there and he's laying down and she'd see his feet. And so she went inside. Then she saw the blood and everything inside. And I'm sitting there saying, okay. And I watch these programs because I like to stay sharp, even though I'm retired. But I sit there and say, I stopped, I paused it. I said, okay, number one, a seasoned homicide investigator would have said something wrong right there in the garage. Let's get the crime lab out here to clear a path for us. Let's find out. Let's let them do their job first. Then we can go in. Because every time you walk from the outside into a crime scene, you take something from the outside in. And every time you walk inside and you walk out, you take something from the inside out. So let them clear a path. She never should have gone past this point to that point to get up there to that point because she's screwing up. She's contaminating the crime scene. And so I see these things. And so you, you, you have to be very cautious of how you work and what you do. And that's all you can do. Little things that make a big difference. How quickly were you able to uh, kind of like tell like, okay, this guy's not our guy in that crime. Like if you were out called to a crime scene, how quickly were you able to determine, no, this is not our guy. This is not, um, and then move on. Once we got involved in the case, once I got involved in the case, because what happened was I got the first one March 17th of 85. Then uh, somebody else got the call on March 29th and they went out to handle a separate case. I didn't know about it initially. Then they told me about it. And that's the first time I saw, saw the shoe print. Then he had again in May in another city, a contract city, Monterey Park. And he went out there. And so during this time, I'm looking at physical and suspect descriptions. And they sound the same. But there wasn't evidence. <clears throat> March the 17th, he killed Dale Okazaki and shot uh, Maria Hernandez, 22 caliber weapon. 40 minutes later, he had no sense. But 40 minutes later, in the city of Monterey Park, he shot at a lady, Silent you, 22 caliber. But the bullets were so distorted, we couldn't tell if it was the same gun or not. So those cases are often physical descriptions. From Maria Hernandez to Silent U, they're generally the same. We also had an attempted child abduction in Pico. And same physical description. Then I found out we had a five-year-old that was abducted off a bus bench. Same physical description. And so you're looking at these things, and they're all adding up. But you don't know. There wasn't anything solid, no physical, real physical evidence uh, that was there. I owe everything, my knowledge, the work in the case from a professor that I took at Cal State L.A., a guy by the retired FBI agent by the name of Robert Morneau. 
He was great. He was a great instructor. He used humor as his vehicle to get his points across. And I took two semesters of advanced criminal investigation pertaining to sex crimes. And he let me see things that I never would have seen uh, before. And he gave me the knowledge to work the case. So when I saw all these things going on, that's what led me to believe this is the same guy doing it. And that's what the other guys were saying. You're full of shit. You know, you got no physical evidence. You got this, you got that, you got speculation, you got circumstantial evidence. And I knew what it was, but that was because of the education that Bob Orno gave me. So moving forward, well, well, actually with what you said, the, the pungent smell going out like, that people kept telling you the description and the pungent smell was a thing that was on there. Uh, how he was visiting family, like, spoiler alert again, if you haven't watched it. Um, the thing is, he was going to go visit a brother. My thought when I, because uh, I think the pungent smell thing was also part of the Netflix documentary. I thought if he looks a certain way, smells a certain way, but he's visiting family, he must have been visiting family between that time span, right? Or maybe he wasn't, but... In April, in April, he was back in El Paso. We know that. The month of April, we had nothing happen in California, and we knew he was back in El Paso. How, how did you guys know he wasn't... Because we did a workup on him, and he had a... He attended a baptism back in uh, El Paso at the time. Oh, and we knew that. Now, let me tell you about that pungent odor. Let me ask you, have you ever, did you ever play sports in high school? Any kind of sports? Yeah. Like, okay, I don't care. Baseball, football, whatever it was, you'd get that smelly shit that you sweat in and you'd put it in your locker. And then once a week, maybe, you would take it home and have it washed. But when you open that locker, it stunk like shit. The whole locker. Yes. Okay. So now Richard had what we called his kill kit. He wore the same clothes when he went out to hit his victims. And he kept all his clothes in a locker, the kill kit, Mm -hmm. in a locker in the Greyhound bus depot. So just imagine you getting your sweaty stuff put in a locker then putting it on to go out and commit your dirty deeds that's what he was doing that was the smelly odor he had blood on his clothes it stunk he had sweat on his clothes it stunk there's the pungent odor i get so many questions around around the world that he really smelled like a goat that he smelled terrible what was his smell like when i interviewed him he didn't smell bad at all yeah i didn't notice any odor. Shit, I probably smell worse than he did. <laughs> uh, okay, well, so that's the, that answers my question because I was gonna ask, how does their his family not like recognize there's something sure. going on with them? Because he probably was showered. I didn't even think of that. That he smelled disgusting because he was wearing exactly the same clothes every time he capered. But that's outside right. of that, was normal guy, probably yes, showered and all that. Okay. Other probably had foul breath because of his. He probably his had foul breath because of his teeth. But even at that, we were sitting across the table from each other, and I didn't notice any anything extraordinary. Yeah, and as a uh, yellow teeth or whatever could have been smoker stuff or whatever. Sure, or, but okay, um, that makes sense. because that, that's what I was thinking. I was like, 
man, if I notice anything off from my brother, I can quickly say, oh, something's not going right with this guy. And I need to see, hey, man, you're doing good. So I wonder, like, if the parent was, not the parent, but the family was covering for him or just didn't notice anything, or if maybe they no. were just deviants as well. <laughs> I don't know. No. Well, his brothers were no good. Uh, his dad lied from his dad testified back in court uh, in trial that he hadn't seen his uh, that his son was back there for six months from April for six months. You know, he had the son was there in Texas. And so if he's testifying that his son is there in Texas, well, that makes him ineligible to be back here coming in these murders. And when he, his dad testified, I went back, uh, I kept the journal of all the uh, newspaper articles that were being published and I found an article in there after his dad testified that there was a reporter that talked to his dad the day after his arrest and his dad said I haven't seen him in six months so he testified over here that he'd been back there for six months but yet he told the reporter the day after his arrest that he hadn't seen his son in six months I contacted El Paso newspaper and they said oh shit he's not working for us anymore he went to Miami I called Miami and I called information. I said, give me the two biggest papers you got. They gave me one. I called it up. I said, please don't hang up on me. I'm not nuts. I'm a detective. <laughs> I'm looking for this reporter. And they said, oh, yeah, you want to talk to him? He's here right now. Put him on a phone. I said, hey, do you remember talking to his dad? He says, oh, sure. I'll never forget it. I said, you ready for a vacation in L.A.? We'll fly you out here. Keep you over here for a week or so. And so he came out and testified. Blue Daddy right out of the water. Showed the article, testified to it, and just showed the dad was lying for him. Dang. Dang. Oh, the, I was, I wrote down here, Gil was stabbed. Uh, when were you stabbed? I was a kid in junior high school at a fight. And oh, it wasn't, it wasn't? Yeah, it wasn't as a cop. I was okay. shot at by cops when I was a cop. I was shot at by a cop, and I was shot at by bad guys. But... I was a kid. I was a, I was in junior high school, and I got stabbed right in my ass at a gang fight. Dang, and that's is that when uh, when and I was when... and, and to be honest, I was more afraid of my mom kicking my ass because I had a hole in my pants and blood all over them. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, I've, I, I, I can see that. I I I've been in many fights when I was a kid and. The the thought the first thought was if I get my ass kicked, it's not the worst thing because then I'm gonna get my ass kicked by my mom when I show up at home. <laughs> and that was the worst. Yeah, part. my mom my mom was the tough one. <laughs> that was back in the day where you got in trouble with school and it wasn't the school's fault, it was your fault. You know, oh, girl, they don't lie. Now you're gonna pay today. Anything happens to kids, it's always a school's fault. But, but not in my family, not with my kids. They they knew. No, we're gonna find out. You know, we'll see what's going on. My son, he's he's forty four years old now, and we laugh. He was when he was in high school. He cut class because he didn't want to. I don't know. He didn't do his homework or didn't want to see the teacher. He cut one class, but then the pendejo wasn't sharp enough. He didn't know how he was gonna get back in a class. So he went four days without it. Then I got called from the school. And I went down to talk to the counselor, and I brought him in. They brought him in. I said, okay, Governor, explain this one. 
<laughs> and I told the counselor, I said, hey, he may have won the day, but dad's going to win the battle. You and I are going to get to get, make sure this guy flies right. And so it did. I, I don't, it's not their fault. It's my fault, you know, or your fault, son. In this case, Pendejo, you didn't know how to do it. I agree 100% with, you know, it's definitely different. Uh, it's always, what did you guys do? It was always not the school's fault. It was like home fault. And I think, you yeah. know, I want to say there's has to be definitely a mixture of a fault with both, but I definitely don't think it's always the school fault as it is now. Like it's always the school's fault. I don't agree you know, with that. I, I attended a conference once uh, when I was working at gangs and it wasn't a college. It was a Cal State LA, as a matter of fact, but I, I attended it and I listened to some doctor get up there and say, and this is in a primarily Latino neighborhood, all Hispanics, and Cal State, bunch of Mexicans going there. So this is a lot of cops at this conference. And he's saying that uh, the problems in the Latino neighborhoods are, they are what they eat. Starches, all the starches they eat, beans and papas and rice and tortillas, creates their problems. I got up and I walked out. I said, this Bob also doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. You know, it's the parents that are responsible for what their kids do. You know, let's start putting blame where blame belies, you know. Stop hearing, oh, not my mijo. Toma, yeah, it is your mijo that's bad. You know, and if you just learn how to talk to them, and they're all so protective, my mijo wouldn't do this. No, it's time to stand up and say, hey, yeah, my mijo's no good. We better. And why is he no good? Because we failed him. Society didn't fail him. We failed him. That's what they got to do. Well, I'll tell you this, Gil. I never told you my uh, my day job. My day job, I'm actually a special education teacher. Um, so I, I definitely... You. Thank you. Thank you for what you do. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, of course. But um, I see it. Yeah, that's why I'm saying, like, I try not to talk about it too much on here, but I definitely do see that it's more on us. And it's like, no, yeah, sometimes the school does fail. And sometimes the parents do fail. And sometimes it's, but most of the time, we got to figure out how we can fix it together. But a lot of the time, when it's just the parent thing, you can see why. And it's like, they they come with well, it's a lot of like excuses. And I was like, look, sure. I want to help you. Like, and here's my thing. Like, just how you said, like, you understand when you were a police officer and you were doing your job, you tried to understand like, hey, I was there once and I I want to give you the benefit of the doubt and give you an opportunity and not just completely destroy your life. Same with the school. Like, hey, if you get in trouble uh, and not so so much me right now, you know, being a special education teacher, but there's certain stuff you can do and be like, hey, I don't want to get you in trouble because I know what that would lead to. So how do we fix it together uh, before it gets to that point? And sometimes you just can't like because like you, there's no help from the parents. And I'm just like, what what happened to the world? It's like, yes, we're here with you. The only thing I fault schools for, and it's not the teachers, it's the administration, because 
they try to keep problems in house because to make them public or make them aware of the parents, then it reflects on them. Hey, maybe we're doing our shortcut. So they try to keep things in house. They failure. They fail to notify. We don't want to get law enforcement notified because oh, it may look bad. They don't want to create create a big barullo over something so simple that can be we can take care of right here. That's the only thing I blame schools for. And I don't care what kind of school it is, whether it be special ed, regular ed, because I've helped kids in special ed that special ed teachers have taken advantage of them and have, and have paid the price for them. They're in custody. They've gone. doesn't mean all special ed teachers are like that, but something that could have been identified because, and I don't want to bring religion, just like when they had the big scandal with Catholicism, the priests trying to cover up and keep their own in. That's the only thing I blame school districts for is their failure to make notification, failure to make proper, make everybody aware because they don't want to create a problem within themselves yeah. to make it look like they're not responsible for it. And and so that's the only they're problem. They're a bad school or something. Sure. That's the only thing I have problems with school district for. I admire teachers. I love them. Without them, I wouldn't be where I am today. They are working with kids, and they are. The kids are the future of tomorrow. And so we need to do everything we can to help them out. For sure, man. For sure. Um, one funny story to bring this back into, like, a little lighter situation. Uh, when you are saying about your son skipping, it reminded me about – and I've never told this story to anybody. So here we go. <laughs> uh, Dad, if you're watching, sorry. Um, <laughs> um, okay. And this could be one. Hey, of Dad, like, this one's for you. Siéntate, Dad. Siéntate. Siéntate. Cheers, Dad. Um, this is one of those where it's not the school's fault and it's not the dad, uh, the parents' fault. It is maybe the friend's fault. And so my friends, I, I think I felt like I always hung out with like everybody, but my real close group of friends were more of the the nerdy friends. Like they were like, kind of like, we, we follow the rules kind of stuff. But we saw that in, I think we were in 10th grade, we saw people were skipping and leaving campus. And so I was like, oh, well, let, let's do it. It's like the last month of uh, of school. So let's skip and let's go. And so one of my friends was like, yeah, we can go to my house. And nobody, my parents work so we can stay there all day and then come back when the day's over. And we'll play video games. So it's a day of that guy that had us that was going to go to our, we were going to go to his house. He backs out last minute. And I was like, oh, so now we have nowhere to go. And I was like, let's do it anyway. So we leave. And then we were walking through, like, the town. And I realized everybody knows me. If anybody sees me here, they're going to notify my dad. And my dad's going to know that I'm not in school. So there's no way we can walk the streets and, and, and not get caught. So my idea was, like, let's walk through the tunnels. And we had, like little like tunnels, canales, like that we can walk through. And it was like, well, where do we go to? It's like, let's go to Mexico. We're right, right, right here. We're really close. 
let's go to Mexico. <laughs> so we did. We walked all the way underneath as much as we could, like to like nobody see us. And as soon as we get to like the, we got to the bridge, we jumped out and crossed into Mexico and whatever. Now we were free. Nobody could nobody in Mexico knows me. And at the time I was like, nobody no not even thinking like what could have happened to us in Mexico. But I knew Spanish, you know, I was like, you can't confuse me for I look like I'm from here because I am from here. <laughs> um, so no worries of that. Uh, we spent the whole day. We bought, you know, we had some cash with us, so we were able to eat. We bought some chips. We bought soda. We hung out on the riverbank of the, uh, the oh, man, of, uh, the Rio Bravo. That's what we call it, like the, the, the river that separates the U.S. from Mexico. So... Mm-hmm. We were watching the border patrol just back and forth, back and forth, and then we realized, I think they're going back and forth, back and forth, because they think we're looking to cross. <laughs> we're like, let's get out of here before we get into some real trouble. Oh man, um, long. So that story. We Did never you get into trouble? trouble? No, we never got into any kind oh. of trouble. No, but like I said, nobody has ever heard this story. That's- this is oh, the first it's time. okay, Dad. It's okay, Dad. <laughs> Nobody. Like, we didn't get into any trouble. We made it back to school. Uh, the only trouble we did run into was one of my friends had to use the restroom, and, like, to go number two. Uh, there was um, – it was a pay-to-use restroom. Like, it was um, – he had to pay a certain amount of pesos to use the restroom, like, to even open the door, and he goes in – realizes there's no toilet paper. <laughs> he had a bag of hot Cheetos with him. And I'm not making, cannot make this up. He dumped the hot Cheetos out and and, and just wiped his, himself with it. And it's like ever since then, like for the whole rest of the school year, we called him Cheeto. Just for that. There you go. That's a good name. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That's the only, like, like real trouble that we ran into. But we made it back to school, went home like normal, and that's it. <laughs> that's that story. <laughs> but, uh, Gil, not to keep you too much longer, I appreciate you. Oh, man. We went too hard, too fast for sure for a good while. Um, half beer. Yeah. Cheers. So two final questions. The first the first one is what and this is my wife's question. What truly made you cuz she was watching the documentary with me and she was like what makes somebody want to be a cop? But I think she was thinking in terms of nowadays where things are so polarized. But even then, my answer was like, "What makes anybody want to be anything?" So for you, what wanted, what made you want to be a police officer? It, it was the fact that that uh, one deputy sheriff, Alfonso Arias, helped me get off the streets, and all I wanted to do was have the ability to help someone else. He saved my life. I wanted to give back to someone else uh, in my life. Yeah, I just want to help other kids. And that was the incentive. It was an honest job, a job of integrity at that time. 
And that's what I want to do. I want to give back. Perfect. And then I know there's a lot of questions still probably for the documentary. I think the documentary definitely answers a lot. So people watch that support documentary. I think it's great. The thing that always that did catch me was like, how many murders did uh, Richard Ramirez do before Gil Carrillo got on the job, you know, before they started figuring out. And I think that's not something for us to know right now. And I do appreciate the way it ended, like how you say you say the names and you pray for them. And sure. And I'm maybe misquoting this. Do you pray for him? I every night when I say prayers, whether I say depending on how tired I am, is prayers at night or prayers first thing in the morning. Uh, but I always say in the end, and I pray for the soul. Two people, aside from my friends and everybody else that has gone before me, I mentioned two names: Charlie Manson and Richard Ramirez. And people ask me why those are fucking killers or damn you know, they're. And my only answer is because nobody else is praying for him. And if anybody needs help, they do. And if you believe in, in, in the good Lord, and I'm not an angel, and I'm not advocating or I'm, I'm not talking religion, but if you believe, he was all forgiving. And so I have no say-so on what happens to them. If they're in hell and they're burning and suffering, so be it. It wasn't of my choosing. All I can say is I offer prayers for their soul. I still do. Two worst, and there have been other murders. I don't mention any other murderers that I've convicted, but those are the two worst guys that come to mind that were full of the devil. And when I talked to Richard, Richard said, I said, Rich, what you know that I can't. If I tell you that much, Lucifer will kiss, kick my ass when I get down there. You know, so I still pray for his soul. And then I'm not, I'm not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed. And I know some of my colleagues will say, why fuck him? You know, that's just what I got to do. And I'm secure in who I am. I like that because I'm definitely on the fuck him kind of side, but sure. that's more because I'm seeing it from an outside thing. And it's just like, I'm seeing it like just a citizen. Of it America. doesn't, it could be anybody kind of thing. It doesn't, it, it really doesn't matter. If he's in health suffering, fuck him. I like it. That's what he deserves. But I've still got to pray for his soul. You know, that's just me. And, and I don't care if anybody disagrees, likes it, dislikes it. Like I said, I'm secure. I won't say I disagree. I like, I like the idea of it. Like, I like the, I like it a lot. Um, like you, like you said, it's not for me. It's not for me to yeah. decide what happens to him. Yeah. Whether. Nor do I pray for any of the other guys. Exactly. But I like the idea of that for you, that's sure. what you do. And that's, I yeah. like that. Um, I don't, like I said, this was when I wanted to talk to you. I wanted to talk to Gil Carrillo. And I want to talk mm -hmm. about. And this whole podcast, we didn't really focus too much on Richard Ramirez. We no. focused on the outsides around it. And that's what I liked. And that's what I wanted to do. Um, 
but regardless, it's an interesting story. I am 100% thankful and just in all that this was even a connection that we were able to make. So I appreciate that, man. Thank you. One of these days, it's it's always, well, you know, those bucket lists. I've always wanted to go to San Antonio. I want to see the river walk. I just want to see what it's like down there. I've been to Dallas a few times, but I want to go and I want to take my wife down to San Antonio and see what it's like. Well, let's do it, man. Let's do it. You know what? If you can, if you can afford California, you can afford San Antonio. Easy. Well, I ain't moving down there, brother. No, no, no. I'm not, not saying there. that. Not saying that. <laughs> I'm saying if you can just your daily life in California, you're right here. You'll be living like a king. <laughs> hey, as long as they have tortillas, papas, frijoles, and chile, I'm, I can live like a king. Anywhere. Oh man, yo te llevo aquí. We have some good <laughs> stuff, dude. If you do make it. We'll meet up and we'll have some good drinks, some good food. Dude, Sounds good. Some good food. Um, Sounds good. So I appreciate it, but leaving you with the final question. Do you have a too hard, too fast story? Uh, a time where you were too drunk to function, some a cautionary tale, words of wisdom, or anything you feel comfortable sharing with us? I, I'm, I'm going to give you perhaps words of wisdom of, of an old man. And there's the old story about the baby bull and the daddy bull looking over the top of the hill, and there's a bunch of cows down in the valley. And the baby bull says, come on, dad, let's get down there and fuck a cow. And the daddy bull says, hey, let's take our time and fuck all of them. (laughs) So from an old man to a young man, I tell you, don't get too hard too fast. Slow down, brother. And spread the wealth along the way. It's a lot more fun. God bless you. <laughs> Dude, oh man, you killed it. That's, I, I don't know if anybody's ever going to top that. That is perfect. I'm glad you even fucking threw that too hard too fast in there. That's good. There, there you I appreciate go. It. Instagram. We didn't even talk about that. Do you still oh, like, do, hey, do you want people to- I'm on Instagram. Real Gil Carrillo. Real Gil Carrillo, and I got one of the little blue things that says I'm the real guy on the end of it. Uh, not to take away from your podcast, but please, any any of your listeners, listen to George Lopez, Oh My God, Hi, uh, podcast where I'm the co-host uh, doing that. We put out once a week. I think we just dropped number 68 this the other day. We'll do another one on Sunday. Right now, it's, it's kind of tough. We're doing just like you and I, we're doing Zoom because he's filming out of the state. It's a secret, secret movie, secret location. So we're Zooming out of state. And But please, follow, listen. George is a great guy. I'm going to go see him. He'll be in Vegas in September. Damn, that's awesome. And fuck, taking away from me. This is awesome, man. I'm one degree away from George Lopez. That's awesome. There, there you go. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and if I can be perfectly honest, uh, this has been a fun podcast to do. I've done bunches of them. You know, uh, I'm nobody special. And I've always said that. I'm nobody special. So the local guys that, hey, can you do a podcast? Sure, I'll do a podcast with you. I'm nobody. I'm no better than anybody else. And so... This one has been fun. The way you approached it, 
the way you drank with me, the way we had fun, the way we left, and you did your homework before you got here. So I, as many as I've done and what I've done with George, it's, it's a breath of fresh air. Thank you, brother. No, man, that makes me feel good. Thank you for the invitation. No, thanks for doing it. Like I said, uh, even though you keep saying that you're nobody special, I, I really think you are, man. I really think you're, you really are. Um, and I do, truly do appreciate that you even came on. I truly appreciate oh, that. My pleasure. You're welcome on here. As long as you want to come back on, we'll keep in touch. I would love to have you back on. I'm sure we can talk about a whole bunch of things. So I would love to you have you call back me on. back. You call me back anytime you want. It would be my pleasure and a distinct honor. If I get out to San Antonio, I'd love to look you up. Go have a taco. Listen, to, I want to listen. To my, I love mariachis. Listen to mariachis. Have a a little something, you know, besides coffee to wet our throats. There you go. A great time. We will. And you have my number. You have my. You have the podcast hey, number, and you have my real number. Don't forget to tell your dad. I said thank you for his service. I'll tell him for sure. I'll show him this video. <laughs> thank you. He'll probably be proud and disappointed at the same time. No. <laughs> And with that said, ladies and gentlemen, remember, Jerry, be you, Jerry, be weird. Bye. <laughs>